0: Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, September 24th. This week, we'll talk to former Canadian Prime Minister Paul Martin about his decision not to join the ballistic missile defence system, then increasing border restrictions. Is there a role to play for the Canadian government? And we'll talk to a couple of seasoned political journalists about the first week back for members of parliament. But first, World leaders gathered in New York last week for the annual UN General Assembly. In his speech to the UN, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau chose not to speak about global issues, instead focusing on Canada's mistreatment of its indigenous people.
1: Canadians get it. They see the inequities and they're fed up with the excuses.
0: Former Prime Minister Paul Martin has focused his post-political life on improving the lives of Indigenous people in Canada. I sat down with him late last week. So thank you so much, Mr. Martin, for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on the program.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: I want to ask you, of course, about Indigenous affairs. I know it's an area of great interest for you in a minute. But first, I have to ask you about something that's been in the news often over the past few weeks, and that is the increased threat from North Korea. We heard from the Deputy Commander of NORAD saying that It's official U.S. policy not to defend Canada if a missile was aimed at us. Because we are not part of the Ballistic Missile Defense Program at NORAD, you were the last Prime Minister to officially say no to joining that program. Do you think you'd make a different decision today?
1: I think that, you know, you make a decision given the circumstances of the time. And those circumstances have changed um, substantially. I don't think there's any doubt that North Korea is the greatest threat uh, that any of us face. Uh, at the present time
0: and so are we to take from that i guess it might be a different decision this time do you think that the circumstances have changed enough No.
1: you know one of the things i've learned is not to anticipate uh, decisions that will be made by the department of defense we've got an excellent minister of defense um, and it's going to be part of a much wider decision in terms of our own national security Um, but you can rest assured that that what's going on in north korea is going to be very much front and center as they make those decisions
0: We spoke actually last week to George MacDonald, who was the deputy commander of NORAD at the time. And he said that he was part of the sort of bureaucratic team leading the charge on BMD. And until that decision was made, he actually thought that you were going to say yes. Why why did you say no at the time?
1: Because there were an awful lot of unanswered questions, which we couldn't get answered. Mm
0: -hmm. And what were those questions?
1: Well, the question is, these were the questions as to uh, what would Canada's role be? Uh, what uh, what ability would Canada have to influence decisions um, and and essentially how is it going to work um, a lot of a lot there's been a lot of technological improvements since then
0: okay great let me switch over to indigenous affairs. I know you've applauded the government's decision to split the ministry into two critics have said though it's the last place you should add another layer of bureaucracy Why do you think it will work
1: because it was absolutely necessary. Uh, it was recommended by RCAP. I would have done it as, as a follow-through on, on, on Kelowna. You have got, if, when you spend, think that you spent the last 60 years underfunding First Nations education, underfunding First Nations health care, underfunding child welfare, and all, you've got to, we've got to put this on a fair basis. There's, there isn't, it's immoral what, what has gone on in terms of the underfunding of these. But that's going to take a, a lot of work to put all of that, to, that together. At the same time, um, the the confirmation of the inherent right of self-government and the transition out of the Indian Act, which is absolutely crucial, is a huge undertaking. And so what you've got is two of the most important decisions, not just Indigenous, just two of the most important decisions Canada has to take uh, in the years to come, are those two decisions. Don't mix them up. Give them to two very strong ministers which is what we've got in both Carolyn Bennett and Jane Philpott, and then let them focus on the two.
0: Let me ask you about how huge the undertaking is, because I remember when the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, was elected. He said, you know, his top priority was was remodeling and sort of rejigging the relationship, renewing the relation to the nation to nation relationship with Indigenous people. I remember the excitement was palpable then uh, when, when he said it. And I remember also covering Canada Day this year and and many other events, and I I don't want to speak for anyone, but people who spoke with us were very disappointed about what's materialized since. Do you think that this government set the expectations too high?
1: No, I I think that they set the expectations where they should be. Uh, Indigenous Canadians, in fact all Canadians, certainly have the right to say that their education, their health care, uh, their their welfare, all of the others, the, the drinking water, is going to be the same quality as other Canadians. And so I think Canadians expect that, that that's what the government is going to drive for. But you also have to work on the relationship. And the, that's been where a lot of the problem ha, ha, has been over the last 250 years. And so you have to start somewhere. Um, we would have continued this as Kelowna had stayed in. in in, in office. And I I congratulate the Prime Minister and I congratulate him for appointing two very strong ministers to do it.
0: There are a couple areas specifically that I wanted to get your take on. Um, The first, the Missing and Murdered uh, Indigenous Women Inquiry. There are calls for that to be scrapped, again because Expectations were set at a certain point, and a lot of people feel that they haven't been met. Do you think that the inquiry in its current iteration can be quote unquote mm. successful?
1: I think that I think that you obviously got to restart in certain places, uh, but Which I, places? I well, that's really up to the, that's up to the the, the current co- commission. Don't forget when the probably the most successful commission that we ever had was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and they had. A bit, of, a bit of a jumpy start at the beginning. That's not unusual in a situ- situation such as this. But what we, can't, we, what we can't do is just give up. What we have to do is to say, yes, there the, are the, the things we've learned, and we're going to learn from them, and we're going to start over here.
0: So you wouldn't advise scrapping the No, the whole thing. A, I, I would not. Okay, the other, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that you brought up, uh, the Prime Minister also promised to, to meet or to fulfill all 94 recommendations. Is that too tall an order, or...? Do you think it is possible?
1: I think I think it's I think it's possible. Um, I think that there have to be priorities, and the prime minister is setting them. And I think those priorities are healthcare, education, child welfare, clean water, and housing. Um, But so you and they they have established those priorities. But there's no reason why that they can't accomplish the rest. They're not going to do it overnight. Um, What
0: is a reasonable timeline? Because that seems to sort of be missing from I I guess a lot of the discussion, even on our parts in the media.
1: Well. I think the re- I think that they've got to go as fast as they possibly can recognizing that there are huge differences of opinion. Just take just take nation to nation. Mm-hmm. I mean is nation to nation 640 and, and uh, 40 communities or is it 60 First Nations or where do the treaty nations fit within all of this? So I think the, the, the there's an enormous amount of work that the First Nations have uh to to, to accomplish. Uh and and so I think that that time has got to be taken to do this right. And we've got to recognize that it's got to be done at the pace that the First Nations or in the other, in other instances, uh, the Métis Nation or the uh, the Inuit, want to see how. The question of pace is not my decision or your decision. Right. It really is the Indigenous people of Canada's decision.
0: I guess, though, I, I wonder how then do you... you as a government, you have to eventually get things done, though. So, is it? Do you envision it? It will be difficult to sort of strike a balance between trying to get things done and trying to fulfill the promises you've made, and stopping the sort of paternalistic way that that's been done in the past.
1: But you see that you put your you put your finger on it. it's what I just said. It's the First Nations decision. The paternalistic way is for the government to decide. Oh, we're you know we got other things we've got to do. Well, that's what we've been doing for about three hundred years. So let's not. Let's essentially under- recognize the role that the First Nations, the Métis Nation, and the Inuit have got to play in this, and they're the ones that are going to set the time the, 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 the time schedule, uh, and it's up to the government to essentially make sure that it is doing everything it possibly can to make that role. As as smoothly as it possibly can.
0: You mentioned also the right to education and the chronic underfunding of education. There is an important decision that's being made, a human rights decision about that uh, that the government is so far not complying with. What's your What's your feeling on that?
1: Well, you're talking about the you're talking about the welfare decision. Yes. Well, the government the government's going to put the money up for that. Um, and, they and,
0: haven't really given that indication to the public. No, but the but.
1: question is, well, but they are, they're going to be putting the money up, there's no doubt about that in my mind, and then the, but then the question is, where does it go, and how, does, how is it dealt with? Again, this has to be the First Nations uh, deciding in this particular case, uh, and I think this is really important, and if you look at the nature of some of the questions that you're asking me, you're sort of saying, well, who's going to, who's going to decide the timelines? I believe it's the Indigenous people who have got to decide the timelines. Uh, because never again should we be making the mistake that we set the steps that have to be followed. Uh, and there are outstanding thinkers among the among the Indigenous people. There are outstanding teachers, doctors, uh, uh, welfare workers. Uh, and I can tell you that, that they have got the capacity, but it's not easy to simply mobilize that capacity and move because they've got a lot of internal discussions among themselves that have got to be taken
0: yeah i guess i i ask only because there are a number of uh, a, a number of issues that they feel there hasn't been enough action on that and i and i don't want to uh, you know paint anyone with a broad stroke brush here but i've been to lots of um you know hearing sort of along the lines of the, the inquiry. I've talked to people who were there for Canada Day who were very upset at their treatment. So there, there is among some indigenous people a frustration that what was promised is not being pursued to the degree indicated at the time of Trudeau's election. There, there have
1: been problems with the, the inquiry. And I, I think we understand that and they've got to be rectified. Um, but let's do it.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you okay. so much for your time, Mr. Merton. Great Thank to have you. you on our show. In recent months, Canadians traveling south of the border have been confronted with increased border restrictions and the situation could get worse once marijuana is legalized. What does that mean for Canadians heading south? Joining me now is Mark Holland, Parliamentary Secretary to the Public Safety Minister. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off by asking you a question the Prime Minister was asked last week. And to be honest, I really couldn't make a lot of sense of his answer, so I'm hoping I can get some clarity from you. When marijuana becomes legal here and uh, Canadians head to the border, should they be admitting to using it if they have? Will it prevent them from entering the United States?
2: Well, obviously, up until the uh, legislation comes forward to uh, to legalize marijuana, it is illegal. Um, this is being sold by... Uh, criminal networks. And one of the reasons why it's so important that we legalize marijuana is so that we stop the profits that are being made by these illegal operations. Uh, but up until uh, the point at which it's legalized, it is it is an illegal product. And if you use an illegal product, you're committing an illegal act. For sure. Um, I
0: mean, sorry, when it is legal, though. And that's the question is, that he got.
2: Uh, yeah. When it is when it is legal, um, if people are using it in, the, in, in a legalized regime uh, uh, and have uh, procured it and use it in a legal way, um, then they've been compliance with Canadian law. Uh, The United States is a foreign jurisdiction. Uh, We work with them very closely. Uh, We are certainly in close uh, contact with them on our policy changes and what we're working on. Remember that the United States has uh, many states uh, that have legalized marijuana, so they're dealing with this in a domestic context as well. Uh, so the, uh, we're working to ensure they're aware of those changes and aware of what we're doing. Ultimately, the decision uh, that they make is their decision. Uh, and uh, in, in, as a foreign jurisdiction, we can no more tell them what to do than they can tell us what to do. So
0: would your advice, though, to, be, to, to Canadians at that point next year whenever it does become legal, would your advice be to be honest and tell the truth?
2: Uh, you always have to be honest and, be, and tell the truth when you're at the border. Um, and, and what's
0: your level of confidence that they won't be turned away, though, based on your conversations I, look, with look, your I can say
2: I can say that uh, when Secretary Kelly visited Canada, uh, he was uh, very clear that he had full confidence in our security procedures and the way in which we conduct our our our, um, our, our security. So the Americans uh, haven't and, raised
0: it with you as and a And that their
2: desire is to uh, make our border thinner, not thicker. Um, so, you know, we have every reason to expect that that is uh, the spirit in which this is going to continue and that we're going to see a thinning, not a thickening of our border.
0: Okay, let me switch to another border issue, and that is something that the Privacy Commissioner raised last week. Uh, He said Canadians should be very concerned about the level of electronic searches of our personal devices and basically what U.S. border guards can do with our iPhones. They can access our password, et cetera, et cetera, and they can turn you away based on that information. Did what he said alarm you as well as Canadians?
2: You know, we, again, we are in constant contact with the Americans around uh, the, the fact that every Canadian must be treated fairly and justly when they arrive at the border. Uh, uh, we have a very good working relationship with our counterparts in the U.S., and Secretary Kelly um, and his administration has been, uh, has been excellent to work with. Um, uh, from our perspective, uh, we look at the Privacy Commissioner's report um, and, uh, and we see a lot of areas that we want to work on with, with our American counterparts. We also note that the Privacy Commissioner talked about, in a Canadian context, how strong the Canadian policies were in this area and how... He um, actually
0: also advised that they become stronger, though.
2: Well, I think he's, he said that he would like to see them put into law. He said that they were so effective that he would like to see the existing policies put into law. But I, but remember, in a Canadian context, in the in the ones in the, in the policies that we control, because again, we can't control American policy any more than, than we would ever allow them to control ours. In a Canadian context, there must be a, multi, a multiplicity of indicators uh, that somebody is... Uh, is, is using an electronic device to subvert uh, a law that CBSA has responsible, is responsible for. So that doesn't even include uh, a, a myriad of criminal offences. They cannot use that opportunity to search for some sort of criminality, and there has to be a multiplicity of indicators that something is going on there. So I think the Privacy Commissioner has said, look, Canada's doing a good job, that we should enshrine uh, the good job that we're doing in law. Uh, and we are looking at, um, uh, at ways that we can ever improve our processes, and certainly we We're vigilantly working uh, in our discussions with our American counterparts to make sure that Canadians are treated fairly and justly when they cross the border.
0: I know that you're absolutely right. We can't control the laws that they set, but uh, there are a number of European countries, for example, under the Judicial Redress Act in the United States that have an agreement with the United States that allows them an extra level of privacy protection at the border. Why isn't Canada on that list? It's a question the Privacy Commissioner raised as well.
2: Well, you know, I, th- I was very encouraged when Secretary Carol- Kelly came uh, here and he made uh, the statement that I, I just alluded to earlier, that he wanted to see our border uh, thinner, not thicker, that they have a great deal of confidence in um, in how Canada conducts its security. Has
0: Canada uh, ever asked? Has, has your government ever asked for that extra level so of I privacy So I think
2: it's fair to say that we have a discussion on a, on a, on a wide array of, of issues uh, and that... Uh, It is absolutely our interest to make sure that when Canadians cross the border they can do so as easily as possible. Um, You know, 400,000 Canadians travel back and forth across the largest undefended border in the world. Uh, We have uh, $2.4 billion in trade that cross back and forth between our two countries every single day. Um, It is anything that impedes travel or trade is a major concern for us. And what I can say to you is that in our conversations with our American counterparts, uh, we've been very encouraged um, that th- that things are getting get better and are moving in a-, in a positive direction rather than getting worse.
0: So just quickly, though, tangibly better? Is there a chance that there would be an agreement between Canada and the United States the same as we see between European countries?
2: I-, so? I think uh, we have every reason to expect things are going to continue to get better, and uh, I think that the conversations and the work we have are going to bear fruit.
0: Okay, thank you very much for your time, Mr. Holland. Great to have you here. Thank you. So one week back for MPs on the Hill, lots of name-calling and pushback from the opposition on the government's fall agenda. Joining me now to unpack the politics, Canadian press reporter Joanna Smith and Ottawa bureau chief for the Global Mail Bob Fife. Thank you both for being here. Nice to to see you. Bob, let me start with you. I want to begin with these tax changes, the proposed tax changes, obviously the big issue in question period this week. The opposition is mobilized, they're organized, they're vocal, but the Liberals almost seem to dig their heels in further on this this week. What is motivating? Them, do you think?
3: Well, they do think, in in some cases, they do have a winner issue mm-hmm. in the sense that if uh, wealthy people are using uh, private corporations to evade paying taxes, they should pay their fair share of taxes. Except they've botched it. They botched it so badly that liberal MPs are saying, we don't like this, we've got problems with this. If you watch the finance minister in question period, he gets up and gives his talking points and all the liberal MPs are sitting there, grim faced. <laughs> they're not clapping. When that happens, you're in trouble. You have the NDP actually, who would normally favor taxing wealthy people, actually saying, wait, this is being botched, we need another 75 days of study. Uh, we, because they're hearing from small business people and their writings are saying hey I'm going to get hit here not the rich guy mm-hmm. and then the NDP are saying if you're going after these mom and pop shops why aren't you going after people like you Bill Morineau all the rich fat cats on Bay Street so they've got a big issue here it's it's blown up in their face and they haven't handled it very well.
0: Joanna do you think that they realize how this is kind of blowing up I guess? I,
4: I don't see how they could not realize that I mean this is a huge topic during the caucus retreat in Kelowna, um, sure it was discussed uh, in St. John's around the cabinet table when they all sort of realized, okay, these backbench MPs that we don't normally have around here—they're talking to us and making it pretty clear this is not something they directly campaigned on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you have one Liberal MP was talking about they they're selling class warfare. He said, when we went door knocking. you know someone answered the door and they're a doctor we didn't say oh no thank you we don't want your vote and yet we're going after them right so it's it's caused a a huge problem and and even if the end result is a much more nuanced and watered down plan I mean you know who who possibly could have planned a strategy that involved a a revolt from the backbench
3: and and, you know here's the biggest problem is they can't tell who's going to be hit by the proposals that they put out there Well, they're
0: claiming it's only going to be the wealthy. But but if you look at the proposals, they
3: don't know how many people it's going to to affect. That's why you have people up in arms. It's not so much the income sprinkling or the capital gains part. It's the whole issue of passive investments. Yes. In other words, you know, can you put money in this if you're a small business to plan, to save for your retirement and not Investing be taxed interest. at 73%? Mm-hmm. And that's what people has up, up in arms and, you know, ready to storm Parliament. Uh, they won't do this in the end. You can be you sure. So. No, I don't think in the end they're not going to do this because... Uh, The small business forms is the backbone of the economy. I mean, these are people who are job creators. They're they're going to really make sure it's narrowed down to people who are using private corporations to really save on taxes. I think that's probably what they're going to do. Pretty sure that's what they're going to do because they're not suicidal.
0: Well, the question (laughs) is then, (laughs) hopefully not, and and the question is even if they do it, has the damage been done?
4: I think I, I think, yeah, in terms of, you know, a government never looks good when it's backtracking, when it's constantly on the defensive from its own friends, never mind, never mind its enemies. Um, you will notice though, just the point about targeting it to the wealthy, the liberals have really been focusing a lot more on the income sprinkling. Mm-hmm. And the conservatives haven't really been talking a whole lot about income sprinkling. And that's because income sprinkling involves spreading your income among family members who may end up mm-hmm. not actually doing any work for the company. And it's sort of on the surface to anyone who doesn't understand the intricacy of the tax code, a pretty hard thing to defend from a sort of a moral level, I guess, right? So it's not illegal but um, so I, I think that's one that they really will dig down on in the end and the conservatives haven't really paid. And the capital that, gains attention. one
3: I think they'll yeah. dig down on too. You know who's been damaged here the most it seems to me is the finance minister. He has performed terribly in the House of Commons this week, and you could see it by the way members of Parliament, Liberal MPs, were not clapping, were silent. And he, this is an issue that should have been a winner for him, and he can't explain it. He's not; a, he hasn't proven to be a very good political communicator. And you stand up him against Krista Freeland, who uh, is doing a great job in, in terms of uh, her, the NAFTA negotiations as far as we can see and if she gets this uh, an after deal i would i wouldn't i could see her as the next finance minister and maybe he, mr morneau is moved to industry or foreign affairs
0: do you think it's a communication problem or do you think he doesn't believe the message he's trying to sell
3: i think it's i think it's uh he sold a, a bill of goods by the finance department which didn't prepare uh the proposals well enough that he could sell the Canadians and I just th- don't think that he has been proven to be a, a, a very strong performer certainly not when you when the opposition parties are going hard after him he's not he hasn't proven to be very skilled at dealing with them.
0: And let me ask you about the opposition parties, because this is, a, for the Conservatives at least, something that unites their entire caucus, should be a slam dunk for them. They were going hard on it all week. But then we see uh, Jerry Ritz, a Conservative MP, calling Catherine McKenna climate barbie, and Andrew Scheer waiting kind of a while to apologize for it. Joanna, what happened
4: to the opposition this week? Uh, Well, first, Jerry Ritz happened, I mean, (laughs) uh, this is not the first time he's been in trouble for making a bad joke and getting caught and having to apologize for it, if you remember the Listeriosis crisis, Mm -hmm. almost 10 years ago now, Um, but, you know, someone on Twitter, makes a crude remark and and I should point out not something he made up either. Climate Barbie is this term that's been used a lot by rebel media, which Andrew yeah. Shear has been trying to distance himself from. And yeah, I mean Andrew Shear is trying to move away from this nasty tone the conservatives got a reputation for and Things like this just, you know, distract, and, and that creates a big problem. And, Bob, what did you think
0: about the delay in his response? Why did it take him a while to say anything, and does that do any damage beyond the bubble here? Well,
3: I, I well, probably not uh, beyond the bubble here in terms of his late response, but it just shows that he uh, doesn't have the fr- an A-team working in his office that would say to him, you get out right now and disavow yourself. Because it was clear from, if we all watched Twitter as this was going on, this was going to end in an apology. (laughs) Because uh, young women like you and women are not going to put up with this crap anymore. And politicians have got to get it in their head that this is no-no anymore, a no-zone, stop it.
0: Yeah, a little corny of the Liberals to fundraise off it right after, but point taken, right? Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, both of you, for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, globalnews.ca forward slash the West Block. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.